Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Commodity Culture Interviews, where we dive into the commodity space to give an overview to both new and experienced investors. And today we're joined by a very special guest. But before we get into it, standard disclaimer, none of this is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. And with that being said, I'd like to welcome Justin Hewn, also known as Uranium Insider, to the show to discuss the uranium sector. Justin, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Good to see you. Thank you. Now, you're one of the people online who has the most experience in the uranium sector, having a newsletter dedicated to it, doing a tremendous amount of research. And, you know, we're both big uranium bulls. So we tend to live in a sort of bubble of uranium investing news to the point where we can sometimes forget just how much most people don't know about uranium, particularly as an investment vehicle. So for those who are curious but new to the space, just give us an overview of why uranium and why now. Why uranium and why now? Um, well, uranium is um, a very unique commodity. It 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 tends to move with commodities markets, generally speaking, but it also tends to not really be correlated to anything else. Um, it's a necessary element for nuclear energy. Nuclear energy makes up 20% of the grid here in the United States and somewhere around 10 to 11% of electricity globally. It's a vitally important element. Um, it is nuclear as a growth sector. It's set to grow anywhere from one to 3% per year out for the next couple of decades. Uh, most people don't know that. Most people th think of nuclear as being kind of an older dangerous technology that's slowly, um, you know, slowly dissipating and uh, countries are shutting down plants, which in some cases is true, but um, there's very exciting new technology around nuclear. Um, there's growing sentiment around nuclear because of its ability to produce carbon-free energy. It's actually clean, baseload energy. Um, it actually is the safest form of electricity production that's ever been conceived. Um, and most people obviously think that it's probably the most dangerous, and it's not even close. Um, so it's it's a space that I became interested in primarily due to the previous bull market for uranium, which was of epic proportions. The commodity went from, I believe it was $8 a pound at the lows in, I think it was year 2000, started to tick up into the first couple of years of the decade, and just went on a crazy run from about $10 a pound up to $143 a pound, $134 a pound in 2007. And the equities returned many fold over that period of time. In 2016, I started to research and educate myself on it at the time. And um, so why uranium? Why now? Why uranium is for those reasons. It's vitally important. It's nuclear is a growth sector. And there happens to be a current and growing deficit between the supply and demand of that element. And so that creates price pressure. Obviously, the higher prices are necessary to bring on new production to fill that supply and demand gap. And um, the prices still need to go higher. We've already been on a very strong run over the past couple of years for the commodity but the prices still need to go up another 50% minimum. And the fact that we have financial players, most notably uh, Sprott, positioned and having huge influence on the sector, we believe that the price will be going much, much higher than that minimum necessary threshold to bring marginal production online. 
So uh, why now? It's it's very exciting. We're in the midst of an overall commodities run. Um, nuclear is uh, seemingly almost by the day increasing positive sentiment around its its uh, its, its safe base load power, its clean energy, and more and more countries are adopting it. Um, even countries that have been uh, recently historically bearish on nuclear, let's say, like Japan. Now, the majority of Japanese that are polled do want their plants restarted. So that's a huge, huge shift in sentiment for that to happen. And there's stories like that just all over all over the globe. Um, so there's a lot of energy behind it, uh, for lack of a better word. There's a lot of enthusiasm around nuclear right now. And so it's a, it's a very exciting space to be invested in. So Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, nuclear war, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, these are things that you know, naysayers might point to and people who are thinking of investing in the sector, it can make them hesitant. So could you let us know how safe or how dangerous nuclear energy actually is? Well, I would say that the nuclear energy is a lot safer than uh, investing in nuclear uh, or investing in, in uranium. It's very volatile. It's very volatile. So you need thick skin. You need to have a strong understanding of what it is you're investing in and why. You need to have a, a relatively strong understanding of the fundamentals of the space in order to weather the volatility. But how safe is nuclear? Well, like I mentioned, it is the safest energy production that's ever been conceived. If you measure, um, let's say, lives lost versus kilowatt hour produced, it's the it's the safest energy production. And so, um, you know, the examples that you brought up are obviously very different from each other. Uh, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Fukushima are the kind of the three that stick into people's minds, nuclear accidents. Chernobyl was um, a combination of of, uh, human error and lack of a containment. So all modern reactors have a thick concrete containment around the reactor core. So Chernobyl literally could not happen again at this point. Whether or not a reactor can melt down again, of course that can happen. But the fact that there is a concrete containment that is very, very thick and very robust around every reactor core that's currently operating, Chernobyl will not happen again in the same manner, of course. So um, uh, Three Mile Island, that's a perfect example. That was a partial meltdown of the reactor core and the containment held it. There was not um, dangerous radiation uh, outside of that uh, immediate area. So it actually, you know, while the, uh, the, the meltdown of the core was not uh, technically like a, a positive function of the reactor, the containment did function as it was designed. And so that's actually, in my opinion, Three Mile Island is a positive story for nuclear. Um, in Fukushima, uh, Fukushima was a really good wake-up call because it got all remaining reactors that were up and running um, around the globe upgraded in terms of their safety mechanisms. So uh, the, the reactor totally survived that huge earthquake uh, just with no problems. The tsunami caused the problem. So when the reactor shut down um, following the earthquake, the uh, the cooling had to continue to be flowing. So they have to keep water running through running through the core to keep the core cool. And the uh, because the electricity shut off from that earthquake, the backup generator was running, and that got flooded by the tsunami, causing the partial meltdown. So, um, but even then, that nuclear accident did not take a single life. Not one person was killed from the Fukushima radiation. So um, there was, I mean, there were some deaths due to the uh, panicked evacuation of the area, unfortunately, and of course, from the tsunami. But um, 
most people think that was a very, very dangerous and fatal accident, and it wasn't. So, uh, you know, these these examples really, in my opinion, go a, a long way towards uh, supporting nuclear, not necessarily saying how dangerous it is. The, the other big piece that people always highlight is the nuclear waste. And while it's true that nuclear waste remains radioactive for a very, very long time, it's not extremely radioactive. It's slightly radioactive. It's mostly, it's used nuclear fuel. So a lot of the reactivity has been utilized to create the energy that it did when it was in the reactor core. But uh, nuclear waste is stored extremely safely um, with a lot of oversight and a lot of regulation in casks that are thick walled concrete and steel. And depending on the jurisdiction, they can be stored either at the site, which in the United States, the nuclear waste is stored in these casks at the actual site where of the nuclear reactor. Um, in a case like Finland, they have an underground facility where they take these same casks, they're taken deep underground, and they're essentially buried in clay and concrete and set you know, for, for centuries or longer uh, safely. And so, and the, the amount of waste that's produced is minimal. So for the United States, the largest nuclear fleet in the world, um, since uh, nuclear energy production from the early 60s till now, uh, all of the waste that's ever been produced in the United States can fit on a single football field 30 feet high. So it's really not a lot of material that comes out of these reactors in the terms of waste. Could you speak a little bit about the supply-demand fundamentals currently in play for uranium? Is there currently enough uranium above ground to power the world's reactors, including all of those under construction? Um, yes, there currently is. but And there's no real shortage of uranium, as I'm sure you know. It's, it's a very, very abundant element. Um, it's, it's basically everywhere. It's in seawater. It's in, you, I mean, you can test soil samples around the world and there's usually a small amount of uranium essentially everywhere in the mountains in the, in, you know, surrounding the Valley here in my backyard, there's actually decent grades of uranium, but this is in California and it will never be mined. Um, so it's just a matter of at what price and, um, and what the grades are for that, for that element. So there's, there's no shortage of uranium, but, there is a present shortage of uranium being mined relative to what's being consumed. So right now there's roughly 180 million pounds of uranium that's being consumed, uranium equivalent that's being consumed in the world's reactor fleet. And there's only about 135 million pounds being mined and that's primary mined production. So some of that gap gets filled by what's called secondary supply. This is material that comes usually from enrichers or mostly from enrichers. That's kind of a complex concept to really talk about, but basically um, enrichers are able to take excess capacity that they have at their enrichment facilities and, um, and spin the material down the centrifuges greater than what they have agreed to with their utility customers. So they can utilize that excess, excess capacity to underfeed the centrifuges and they have that extra feed material, the UF6, and they sell that into the market. So underfeeding and tails re-enrichment, they the same thing. They can take excess capacity and re-enrich tails material, waste material from previous enrichment. They can put that back into the centrifuge and spin it a little bit more, squeeze a little bit more out of it. So between underfeeding and tails re-enrichment, there's maybe Historically, there's been more like 20 to 25 million pounds a year. That's more than likely down to between 10 and 15 million pounds a year. So that makes up a little bit of that gap, but it's still a huge gap. 
we're still looking at 20 to 30 million pounds after secondary supply of a deficit this year. And to put that in context, the United States consumes 45 to 50 million pounds a year, every single year. And so this is almost enough of a deficit to keep uh, the, the largest fleet from running. Now, nuclear utilities sit on uh, a certain amount of inventory, and they do that by design. They do that as a safety mechanism. Um, the U.S. utilities have roughly about two years of inventory. Uh, the EU has three years or a little bit more. They have a minimum of three years. But um, the supply deficit really grows out in the future based on what we're seeing in terms of life extensions for existing reactors and building build-out plans. A lot of that has coming from China. They're planning on building, they're adding, let's see, they're about 50 gigawatts right now. They want to get to 200 gigawatts by 2035, and that's about 120 reactors that they're planning on building during that time frame. Just absolutely huge build-out plans, but France is planning to build more. They already have uh, one of the larger fleets in the world. Uh, the UK just stated last week they want to build six or seven new reactors in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. So the sector is growing pretty substantially. And in order for that supply-demand gap to get filled um, out into the future, we need higher uranium prices. And all of these projects that are proposed, well, first of all, all the projects on care and maintenance are going to come back online. And then we still have a supply gap, and that's when all of these new development projects will need to come online. And that takes a lot of capital, a lot of risk, a lot of planning, a lot of development, a lot of money, um, and it doesn't happen overnight. So it's, it's kind of a long-term bet, really. So let's dive into some of the investment uh, vehicles that exist in the uranium space, starting with the physical trust. You've got the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. You have Yellow Cake PLC. Um, what's your feeling on on those investment vehicles? Um, I think well, they're very different between those two. Uh, Yellow Cake PLC trades on the on the London Stock Exchange. It's traded at a substantial discount to their net asset value for a while now. Um, and they're having some some trouble filling that uh, and getting it back up to to trading at NAV. Um, and that might have to do with the exchange. That might have to do with the fact that um, Spud is just kind of stealing stealing the show here, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. The big difference with the Sprott Trust is that they have an ATM facility, so they can issue shares into the open market whenever they're at a premium to NAV and um, raise cash and buy pounds just over and over and over. Where Yellow Cake, their prospectus essentially allows them to purchase $100 million worth of uranium, uh, US dollars worth of uranium from Kazatomprom. And they can do that. They can exercise that option once a year. And so they, they submit that uh, proposal um, each year whenever they want to do it to their shareholders. It goes to a vote. If it's approved, then they go out and they do a, a capital raise um, and then they go and buy the uranium. So that's their process. Whereas Sput is day over day issuing shares into the open market and buying uranium almost every day. They bought another hundred thousand pounds yesterday. They purchased fourteen million pounds almost this year. Uh, so they're a powerhouse in the space. Um, as far as investment vehicles go, Sput um, I think is the clear choice between those two, especially in terms of liquidity. It's growing in liquidity. It uh, and money invested into that vehicle equals the purchasing of physical uranium. It creates a flywheel. Um, it's 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 brilliant. It's really brilliant, and it, it's safe. You know, relatively speaking. Uh, knock on wood. Uh, asterisk disclaimer. It's a relatively safe. It's probably the safest vehicle 
if you want exposure in the uranium space, because it's just, it's essentially exposure to the commodity itself. You're not taking mining risk. You're not taking jurisdiction risk, management risk, really. Um, it's just a pure, purely exposed to the commodity and it will trade at a discount and premium to nav. The premium to nav doesn't usually get very high because when it does, they're selling pressure by that, with that ATM, but the discount to nav right now, it's, I think it's somewhere around four to 5% discount to nav. So Usually when we get around that level, investors will arbitrage that and buy it back up. But it's, um, I think it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Huge catalyst for the sector. So what about ETFs like URNM? Um, we've got Hura in Canada, where I'm from. Uh, how do you feel about the, the ETFs? ETFs are uh, just a good broad basket. Um, I, I think that URNM is probably the best vehicle in terms of uh, ETF exposure. They are now just last week announced that uh, the shareholders of of, uh, of URNM approved the takeover of the management of the vehicle by Sprott. So it's now the Sprott, or will be soon, the Sprott Uranium Miners ETF. Um, it's 100% allocated to, to uh, uranium and pure play, just like HURA in Canada. HURA is great as well. It's just very small. So um, URNM will give you far far greater liquidity. URA also is very good in terms of liquidity. It has a much deeper options market. I'm hoping that URNM can compete in that realm at some point. And we've been encouraging the John Champaglia from Sprott to um, to do a, a three for one stock split and bring that price back down to get an improved liquidity, improved volume. It'd be on price relative price parity to URA, and uh, the options market would improve. So URA is great for options. Um, it's only 70% allocated to uranium names. So they hold, you know, BHP and Rio Tinto and Samsung and a number of other companies that, that have some relevance to the mining sector and perhaps maybe a little bit BHP has some uranium product, but um, URNM is really kind of the way to go. And that's probably the second safest option and good with liquidity. So moving on to the next kind of up the risk ladder the producers, the big producers, your Kazatom Prom, Cameco, China General Nuclear. What's your view on those as investments? Um, they're they're kind of the 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 main choice really for institutions besides Sput um, is going to these large caps. So Kazatom um, Prom, I think, is probably the obvious value play. You know, I don't want to speak too much on the individual company names out of respect for our, our newsletter uh, members. But um, it's got a bit of jurisdiction risk right now because of its proximity to Russia um, and the fact that they have a JV with Russia and the shipments of the uranium go through Russia. So it's a bit of a question mark right now. The stock is recovering a bit, which is a good sign for the sector. Um, it's it's a large cap. It's, um, it's the obvious value play. They create enormous amounts of cash flow. They pay a dividend. Um, the other large caps are, uh, you know, obviously just generally speaking across any mining investment, the large caps usually have less risk and better liquidity, and the small caps have way more risk and way worse liquidity. So, um, you know, the large caps are kind of the darlings of the institutions. So now moving on to companies who are not producing yet, but who are moving towards production. And I'm going to throw out a few examples, but we're not talking specifically about these companies, just an example, something like a next gen, like a Denison Mines, a Global Atomic. These companies who have proven reserves in the ground and are moving towards production. What's your feeling on those type of companies? Um, I really like development companies. We we generally focus on development companies for our newsletter. Um, we tend to well, we tend to want liquidity. We also like um, 
our preferred investment in this space, and for me personally, also across any resource space, is a company that has a story still to tell. Um, and th- that's to put it very simply. So um, if a company has already made a discovery and they're just kind of sitting around and waiting for the price to rise and not really doing much, that obviously, like in the case of NextGen, can be a great performing stock. But sometimes in the smaller cap, um, you know, there's there's nothing really to move the stock between now and when it, if and when it actually gets developed. So we really like stories that are evolving um, in the development space. And of course, there's less risk. It's not not necessarily a drill play. The exploration companies that are more of a drill play have have much more risk, but we really like the development space. I think that's where um, you can kind of find a sweet spot between liquidity, risk, and upside potential. So let's move into maximum risk. Explorers without a discovery. Are these companies that investors maybe throw some extra money in as a lottery ticket, or do you ever take these companies seriously as an investment? Um. I have in the past on a personal level. Um, there definitely are some serious companies that are exploring. Um, I, it's, you really have to do extra due diligence with explorers. There's plenty of explorers in the uranium space that have been poking holes in the same piece of ground for 10 years and they just rinse and repeat. Um, and it's, and you know, you know, more power to them. They're, they're doing their thing and the management's getting paid and they've got a vehicle and maybe the stock moves and shareholders are happy. But um, you obviously take the risk. A lot of times when what happens with an explorer exploration company is um, speculators will come in based around a drill program. And if the and then when the drill program comes to fruition, the results will determine the next leg. So if you're baking in a lot of expectation for a drill program and it doesn't turn up, I'm not going to mention the name. There's a stock right now that's been hit pretty hard this week because of their uh, drill results were not what the market was hoping for. And that's just what you get with exploration companies. Um, I think, you know, somebody actually reached out to me with an interesting idea just a few days ago, now that you bring it up for uh, a diversified, you know, taking 1% of your portfolio and diversifying it into five explorers, you know, just to have some exposure. Um, You know, it's an idea. Of course, if one of those five goes on a moonshot, then you've got 0.2% of your portfolio going on a moonshot. Does that move the needle enough? I, I don't really know. Not really my style, but um, you know, every bull market has one or two explorers that hit something, hit something fun during the bull market and and go on a serious run. So it's it's always a gamble with explorers, but it can be an exciting space to invest in. Awesome. Well, Justin, this has been a masterclass in uranium and uranium investing. Really appreciate having you on. Uh, you have a newsletter where you focus specifically on the uranium industry. Could you let people know about that and where they can find it? Sure. Yeah. The newsletter is called Uranium Insider Pro. Um, You can find us at uraniuminsider.com. We've been doing it since August of 2019. Uh, We have a total portfolio gain of about 530% right now, overall portfolio wide. So we've done quite well, definitely outperforming the ETFs. Um, We have our own, you know, methods of choosing the companies in the space. We also like to add a little bit of low risk leverage with some intelligence, intelligent options trades that we do once or twice a year. Um, we do monthly webinars. Our next one is, is uh, this coming Monday, the 18th for, for members only. Those are really fun. We go very deep into the sector for about two hours and usually have a special guest from one of our focus list companies. Um, and then we do a monthly in-depth macro focused newsletter that comes out you know, the first week of every month and um, intramonth bulletin emails whenever we have either macro fundamental news that's urgent or um, 
trades, uh, exiting, entering new trades. And so I've got a small team. Um, my, my right-hand man is a retired hedge fund guy. He's very, very sharp. Um, he was in the metal space for almost as long as I've been alive. So it's great to have him on board. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been a great, really great experience. I'm very grateful, very humbled and blessed by this experience. And we, we focus on this stuff every single day. So it's literally what we do all day, every day. And, um, we try to distill it all down, all of the, all of the details and the messy fundamentals that are flowing around this space into something that is understandable and actionable for investors. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.